Well, guys, it's great to be with you. Uh, if this is your first time here, let me introduce myself. My name is Ryan. I serve as one of the pastors here, and I get the privilege of looking at God's Word uh, with you this morning. Before we do that, though, I wanted to share with you just an exciting piece of family business. As a number of you know, on July 31st, uh, we were excited to welcome Olivia Joanne Scott, who is the daughter of Levi and Rachel Scott, our uh, pastor to students. And so here's a picture of little Olivia. Uh, we are just so excited. I hope there's a picture of little Olivia. There she is. And so we are so excited to welcome her. We ask for your continued prayers for uh, Rachel and Levi as they step into this season. But we are just so excited in seeing God's faithfulness in uh, bringing little Olivia to us. So with that, um, friends, uh, in our family, we have this thing uh, that always comes up around uh, Christmas time or birthdays, and it's what we call a Homer gift. And I, I was thinking the other day, I, I don't remember where the term Homer gift came from, but this is what a Homer gift is. A Homer gift is a gift that you give to another person when really you're hoping that you'll be the beneficiary of receiving this gift. Uh, let me give you an example of what I mean. A few months ago, uh, one of my boys came to me and said, Dad, you'll never believe it. Xbox is coming out with a brand new Lord of the Rings video game. And if we get an Xbox Series X, oh, let me tell you, you will be able to play the Lord of the Rings. I'm, I'm like, man, and that has nothing to do with the games that are coming out that you want, right? No, it has nothing to do with it. Or guys, you ever do this where, you know, your bride comes around and, and, you know, there's that TV you've been eyeing and you go to your bride and you're like, oh, honey, a new season of Hallmark movies are coming out this year. Man, at Christmas time, can you imagine what it's going to look like to watch each snowflake fall in 8K? I mean... Yeah, 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 yeah. The big game is coming, and, and it happens in between now and then, but hey, let's get it. Let, let's stay ahead of the game so you can watch the Hallmark movies the way that they were always intended to be watched, right? I mean, that's the thing about Homer gifts. It, it, it looks like on the one hand that you're trying to do something that blesses another person, but really at the end of the day, the ultimate beneficiary of the blessing is yourself. And this week, it really occurred to me as I read this passage that in so many ways, we can do the same thing even in our relationship with God. On the outside, external acts of righteousness or worship can look as if they are motivated by a benevolent desire to respond to the rich grace and mercy of God in our lives in an act of surrender and obedience when in reality, the human heart so naturally turns inward and focuses on the benefit that it ultimately gains. And it's here that Jesus gives us this stern warning, that if you practice righteousness, if you practice these expressions of worship in order to be seen by others, here's the reality. You'll get everything that you're looking for and nothing that really matters. And it's why this passage that we're going to look at today is so incredibly important as we walk this journey of faith. Now, if you're just joining us today, we are in the midst of this series in what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5 to chapter 7, Jesus is laying out this picture for this thing that he calls the kingdom of heaven, this reality that is so central that literally it has changed everything we thought we knew about how the world works. 
And Jesus is going to remind us that in this kingdom, the motivation that underlie our expressions of worship, the motives that underlie our desire to reflect God's grace and mercy are often vital in the significance and the power of those gifts. In fact, uh, as we look at this passage today, I want to begin by reminding you of a, of a principle that I think Jesus is going to draw out for us as we look at each of these sections, and it's simply this, that in our worship, in these external responses to the grace and the mercy of God, oftentimes the why is just as important as the what. What the inner motivation of the heart is, what, what's flowing in and through our lives often is as important as the act itself. And it's here that Jesus will move us beyond just the surface level to do some serious heart examination and look at the heart and the design of what he's doing in and through our lives. And he begins in verse 1 by warning us of a very real spiritual danger, the danger of being seen. If you have your Bible, look with me here in uh, chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. It's interesting that in this section, Jesus begins with this word. Beware. Be on your guard. Be intentional. Be purposeful. Jesus isn't saying, hey, this is some casual little problem that you might run into as you uh, seek to follow and worship God. He's recognizing that this is something that if it takes root in our heart, goes all the way to the core and drives us away from what the heart of true worship and obedience really looks like. And he's, what he has particularly in view here is this practicing of righteousness. Again, these external acts and responses that we have to the grace and mercy of God and doing it in such a way that we do it to be seen by other people. In fact, what's striking to me about the words of Jesus is Jesus doesn't mince any words. In fact, he calls it for what it is. Again and again in each of the examples that we'll look at today, he brings it down to a central issue. And he describes those who practice this kind of obedience as hypocrites. You know, this word hypocrite is an interesting one in the Greek and Aramaic. It carries with it this sense of one who wears a mask. You might know this, but uh, in the ancient world, uh, performers on stage, uh, when they would wear a mask and, and present themselves on stage as one thing completely different from what they really were, the word that would be used to describe them is a hypocrite. This is the person who on the outside puts on all the airs of uh, living a life of obedience and surrender to God. On the outside, culturally, everything looks like they're doing things right. But in the inner places of the heart, the motivation and the desire really flow from a desire to be seen as spiritual by other people rather than pure in worship before God. You know, as I sat with this reality this week, one of the things I found myself wrestling with is how in the world do I know the difference? Because if I'm honest, a lot of times, it's not one or the other, but this crazy jumble of motives that show up when I try and respond to God's grace and mercy in my life. What is it, how, how do I know the difference? And as I sat with that this week, I found myself wrestling with the fact that Jesus uses the idea of doing these things in secret 
to describe this kind of pure-hearted motivation. And so I found myself asking, what are some questions that I can ask to discern my own heart? And there were three questions that I came up with that I want to share with you. The first is simply this. Are my actions flowing from a desire to bless God and others or from a fearful anxiety that God and other people see me as good? Uh, The the way that uh, theologians would describe this is they would say, pay attention to your affections. As, as, as you perform these acts of righteousness, are they flowing from a place of response and surrender? Are they flowing from a place that you need to prove to God and to others how good and righteous you really are? Here's a second question. If no one were to notice this thing that I'm doing, would I be frustrated? You ever do that? Like, oh man, I have been so generous. I've been so good. I've been praying every day. I've been fasting every week and nobody cares. And what does that reveal to us about what the motive and the desire of our heart truly was? And then lastly, I think by looking at it in the rearview mirror, does practicing this thing lead me to love or to pride? In, in this exercise of some response to God, when I get to the end of it, do I say, oh God, you are worthy of this and so much more? Or is it, oh God, how amazing I am that I've reached the place in my journey that I honor you this way. Man, wouldn't it be great if other people were at the same place I am? And the tragedy is that when we have that posture, when we have that attitude, It's not just a casual little problem in the mixed motives of the human heart. It literally gets to the core of the worship we're trying to offer to God. You know, I think sometimes it's so commonplace that we don't realize how bad it really is. Let me me give you an example of really what's happening in that moment. Uh, The picture that came to mind for me is that great scene in Revelation where you have the 24 elders standing around the throne of God and they're declaring, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was and is and is to come. Other scenes in the scriptures where Jesus is declared as holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And it's as if, as the 24 elders are standing around the throne, we stand up, raise our hand and say, excuse me. Did you all realize how much I've been praying in order to get here? Can you all stop, please? Can you notice what I'm doing here? Or or we look on and we say, oh man, Elder 17 in the back row, do you realize how off-key you are? Dude, practice a little bit more before you show up to worship. It's, it's why sometimes it drives me crazy when I hear people say things like, oh, worship stunk this week. My spiritual batteries weren't charged. Well, friends, though we hope we are always encouraged in worship, here's the reality. It's not about you. It's about the goodness and the faithfulness of the one who calls us into this life of obedience and surrender. It's not about being perceived by other people as spiritual or good. In fact, when we have that motive, it corrupts the core of what our worship really is. In fact, I would even say this. To the degree that worship is focused on bringing glory to myself, 
it is to that same degree that it ceases to be worship. That's why this is so dangerous. And in order to help us understand what's at stake here, Jesus is going to look at three very practical spiritual disciplines, three very practical responses of worship that we might give to his grace and mercy in our lives to bring our heart back to what matters most. And the first that will draw our attention to is the danger of giving in order to be seen. Uh, There he says, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. Again, it's the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Friends, a few things that are worth noting here in these words. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, you know, when you get around to giving to the needy, if you get around to giving to the needy. The expectation is that this is a natural response to the grace and the mercy of God in our life. Jesus is very clear that there is an intricate connection between our vertical relationship and our horizontal relationships. In fact, um, I'd say I've even discovered in my own journey, oftentimes, one of the greatest tests of how I'm doing with God is immediately reflected in how I'm doing in the relationships with those who are closest to me. And what was happening is uh, people were responding to the grace and the mercy of God by giving to those in need. And and that really shouldn't have been a big surprise. Because even in the Old Testament law, we find commands that remind us of this intricate connection between our vertical and horizontal relationships. Let me give you an example from Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 7 to 9. But what I want you to look at as we hear this, notice the heart change that happens in this passage. If anyone among you, one of your brothers, should become poor in any of your towns within the land that the Lord your God is giving you, You shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Now catch this next part. Take care. Lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say, oh, the seventh year, the year of release is near and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother. Oh man, I'm gonna have to forgive this guy's debt in a couple of weeks. No way, this doesn't make sense. And you close your heart against him and you give him nothing and he cried to the Lord against you and you'll be guilty of sin. What Jesus is exposing here is this desire to give in order to get. The big word that we use in our culture is quid pro quo, right? I'm giving to this need so that others might see how spiritual I am. In fact, it it got so bad that in Jesus' day, these hypocrites were standing in the streets and they were blasting trumpets. Hey, everybody, let me show you how much I love God. What a generous person that I am here. My lowly brother is in need. And I have come to meet his need. Jesus is saying, what are you doing? doing you have both robbed the goodness of god in his provision towards you and you have violated the dignity of your brother in that moment what are you doing and the warning he gives to those hypocrites is you'll get everything that you're looking for other people will perceive you as spiritual but god who sees the heart knows what's really going on. Instead, his remedy is this, that when you give to the needy, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, so that 
in your, your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You see, friends, this is Jesus' perspective on generosity. He calls us to practice secret generosity and graciousness to others as a response to the selfless generosity that God has given you. Friends, um, if you want to grow in the practice of generosity from the heart in your own journey, can I tell you it begins in meditating again on the generosity of God towards you. It begins in sitting again in the rich mercy that every breath that we enjoy is an act of grace and mercy from God. And in the response of worship, we meet the needs of others, not because we ultimately gain something from it, but in light of the goodness of God that he has shown to us, how can we do anything less than to pour out our lives in generosity towards others? I'll close with this on this section. Um, C.S. Lewis once wrote about this whole idea of generosity, and, and he gave a standard that I found so incredibly helpful. He basically says that generosity isn't generosity until it costs you something. Generosity isn't generosity until you have to say no to yourself, say no to one of your desires in order to say yes to God and to others. And when we live from that kind of place, we discover in a fresh way the goodness and the generosity of God. But Jesus now will move on to a second spiritual discipline. He'll invite us uh, to look at the motives uh, behind another thing that we uh, practice all the time. And it's the act of prayer. Again, the words of Jesus. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others. Later, he'll go on and say in verse 7, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. And it's interesting here that Jesus both talks about the hypocrites and the Gentiles. And this week I found myself sitting in that tension and, and was wondering, what's, what's the connection between these two groups? And really it's two extremes. On one hand are the hypocrites, those who pride themselves that they have prayer figured out you ever have that experience where you, either you've prayed or you've listened to another person pray and you recognize that the prayer is more about impressing other people than it is about pouring out our hearts before God? Here are those that pride to themselves, I'm going to show everyone how religious I am by the way that I pray, how I have mastered my relationship with God in a perfectly structured and formed prayer. On the other hand, you have the Gentiles. The Gentiles were those who were pagan in the culture. These were the people who were far from God. And these Gentiles believed that what they had to do was to somehow convince God to hear them. And so what they would do is they would pray again and again by repeating the same words so that hopefully they would annoy God enough that finally that God would listen. And Jesus instead gives this invitation. Recognize that the one that you pray to is who? Your father. Your father. 
Friends, as I have walked this journey of faith, as I have studied uh, theology, one of the things that I've become more and more convinced of is that if you really want to know what your functional theology is, not what you know the right answer to be, but what you really believe, listen to the way you pray. Listen to the way you pray. What do my prayers reveal? about who I believe is on the other end of the conversation when I pray. Let me give you an example of what I mean. In my own journey, one of the things that drives me nuts, and I I hope I'm growing in this, I think I might be, is what I would call just prayers. You know, I go before God and it's like, oh God, here is my need and I just pray that you would do this as if God is somehow inconvenienced by my coming to him in prayer. Or as if God is somehow limited by the bounds of what I am capable of thinking he should do in a given situation. And what in that moment I reveal is my own perception that maybe God is just a little annoyed that I would come to him in prayer. And the invitation Jesus gives us is don't be like the Gentiles who feel that they have to manipulate God to be heard for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Friends, it's one of the reasons why I am so excited about this day of prayer that we're going to do later this week. I believe that prayer is isn't just a part of what we do as the church. Prayer is what it means to be the church. And when we come together in prayer, again and again, what I find is that oftentimes the work of prayer is less about convincing God to do something. And it's more about God shaping and molding and forming our lives to come more and more in alignment with his will. I mean, I just hear so much compassion and tenderness in the heart of Jesus in these verses. Saying, don't waste your worship pursuing all the wrong things. Don't invest your life in that which really doesn't matter. But recognize that when you pray, the one you come before is a good and loving Father. In fact, I would simply offer this as Jesus' perspective on prayer. Is that prayer is about entrusting our will and our lives to a good and loving Father, not to be noticed by others. Prayer is about the posture of surrender and obedience, trusting that God knows what we need and God will shape us in the midst of the journey. And Jesus is warning us don't, don't pray to impress others because you'll get exactly what you're looking for. And that, if that is to impress others, you might impress others. But you aren't fooling God. And it's here then that Jesus will skip down a few verses and invite us into a third and final discipline to be examined in our hearts, and it's the discipline of fasting. If you have a Bible, look with me in verse 16. And when you fast... Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that they may be seen by others. 
I think of the three disciplines, giving, prayer, and fasting. Fasting is probably the one that has fallen most out of vogue. And I think it's because the discipline of fasting is so incredibly misunderstood. Oftentimes when people think of fasting, what they envision is going on a hunger strike with God, right? Like, I'm going to abstain from food, God, so that you listen to me. That's not what the discipline of fasting is about. The discipline of fasting is about making space for God. It's about saying no to the natural human appetites in order to make space to hear his voice with greater and deeper clarity. And what we find is that these hypocrites were walking around town and they were disfiguring their faces. What I imagine is it was likely something like this. Oh, I'm so hungry, but I love God. So I'm fasting. But oh, I mean, literally the picture I get is like my kids after they've just had a big meal and they're like, I'm starving. It's like, no, you're not. (laughs) But they were disfiguring their faces. Oh, you want to know how much I love God? I've been fasting for days. And Jesus is saying, when you fast in order to impress others, You're missing everything that the discipline is about. You're missing out on the fact that it's about making space to hear God in a posture of surrender. You know, whenever I uh, look at the discipline of fasting, there is one passage in Scripture um, that always stands out for me. It's found in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 58, verses 1 to 3, and it so powerfully demonstrates some of these heart dynamics. In fact, in Isaiah 58, uh, you have this breakdown of God reminding the nation of Israel that to simply abstain from food and to neglect the weightier matters of justice uh, broke the heart of God. But I want you to catch the heart dynamics that happen in these first three verses. Listen to this. Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sin. Yet they seek me daily and they delight to know my ways. As if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and you oppress all your workers. I want you to catch the absolute breakdown in communication that's taking place in these first three verses. God is saying to the nation of Israel through the prophet Isaiah, shout to the house of Jacob their sin. Shout to them their brokenness. Shout to them just how messed up things really are. Get their attention. But in verse three, God, why have we fasted and you don't notice it? God, why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? And in the middle, we find this powerful reconciliation of the different perspectives. Can we go back a slide? And it's there. God describes them this way. This is a people who seek me daily. This is a people who delight to know my ways. By the way, from the externals, these guys aren't doing half bad. But then this phrase in the middle. As if... They were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. 
what marked the house of Israel is that they found the words of God important enough to hear, but not important enough to act upon. And this week, I found myself wrestling in my own heart, God, where am I guilty of as ifing you? Where I find your words important enough to know, I delight in the things that you've said, but when it comes to the matter of actually surrendering my life in obedience to you as the appropriate response of worship, I'm simply too busy, too inconvenienced to simply follow through and do what you have asked me to do. And it hit me like 10,000 pounds this week as I began to look at those places in my own life where perhaps in the desire to know God, in the desire to hear what he has commanded, that he has become just a little too familiar And I've lost sight that he is worthy of it all. Friends, we talk about the discipline of fasting, and in many ways, fasting seems so foreign to us. And yet, in so many different ways, we miss the heart of what fasting is really all about. And this is the perspective that Jesus brings us back to. That fasting is about breaking the spiritual autopilot that governs our lives and making space for God. Not a hunger strike that somehow convinces us to hear him. In fact, I, I might even ask the question, in our own journeys, when was the last time that Jesus interrupted the spiritual autopilot of your journey? I once uh, heard somebody talk about life in the church and one of the questions they asked that was just frightening is they asked the question, if Jesus didn't show up to your worship service, could you still do it all and get by? If Jesus didn't show up, could you go through all the external motions? Could you do all the right things on the outside? Could, Could you make everything look good on the outside and you could get by? Or have we lost sight of the fact that it is the worship of Jesus that lie at the core of everything that we do? Or maybe to put it a different way, I've heard it asked this way, that if Jesus calls us to take up our cross daily, to die to ourselves and to follow him, when was the last time that Jesus interrupted your schedule? When's the last time that Jesus interrupted your schedule and you came face to face with the resurrected Christ who calls us to a life of obedience and surrender, not to impress other people, not to prove how spiritual we are, but rather is a reflection of he is worthy of it all. And that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is alive in us as we walk this life of obedience and surrender. And ultimately, I think the question that we're left with at the end of the day is simply this. What's your why? What's your why? 
In fact, maybe let's bring it down to the most basic level. Here we are. We have gathered together for this beautiful thing that we call worship. Why are you here? Because that's just what you do? Because maybe someone close to you wanted you to? Or because we recognize back in that scene the same one of whom the elders sing, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb is as much here in this place and in our lives as he will be on that day. And the beautiful invitation that Jesus is doing is he's bringing us back to the sober examination of our hearts that we may discover the intimate power of a life of relationship, worship, and response to God's grace and mercy in our lives. And so today, what's your why? And is it the why that you want? Is it the why that Jesus is inviting you to? Or today, do you simply need to make space to say, Jesus, I need you to change my why. I need you to shape my why and bring me back to what matters most. You know, this week as I, as I sat in that passage and was wrestling with Jesus in having him do some deep work in my own heart. I was reminded again of an old song uh, that we used to sing um, back in the day, uh, an oldie but a goodie. Um, and I asked Brett if we could sing that as a response. Uh, it's a, a song called In the Secret. Maybe many of you know it. In the secret, in the quiet place. In the stillness, you are there. In the quiet, in the secret hour, I wait only for you because I want to know you more. I want to know you. I want to hear your voice. I want to know you more. I want to touch you. I want to seek your face. I want to know you more. Friends, that's the why. To know God and to be known by him. That is why we gather and worship, to experience the beautiful reality of a relationship with him and to let that reality send us out into a world to make known that he is risen, that he is alive, that he is shaping and transforming lives. That's the why. That's why we're here. And Jesus, with so much grace and compassion, is saying, don't waste your worship. Don't go worshiping in all the wrong places only to realize that it will never satisfy. But let your why be the only thing that really matters. And invite the worship team to come back up. As they do, I just want to invite you to take a moment and to simply go before Jesus and ask, what's my why? What does he reveal? What does he invite you towards? What might he want to do? Let's just take a moment of silence for him.